thanks for listening to this sermon from Cedar Springs Church. We know life is busy and it's easy to get caught up running in so many directions. At Cedar Springs, we see you and we're with you. We also understand the feeling inside of you for something deeper. In fact, we believe God created us for those deeper things and we want to help you discover them. We want to introduce you to a life lived deeply with God and with others. If you're not already, we invite you to visit us during one of our Sunday worship services. We are all working toward taking our next step to move into deeper faith and community. So come, take your next step with us. We don't want you to settle for life as normal because you were made to live deeply. Church family, good morning. It is good to see you. I trust you had a good Christmas and a good new year and that you're feeling okay about getting back into the the normal routine, kids. I hope you're not too depressed about going back to school tomorrow. Um, Some routines are good and uh, we'll soon find our find our swing. Uh, Glad though for the routine we have to be in God's Word once again together this morning. If you're new with us, my name is James Forsyth. I'm the senior pastor here. And as a church family, we spent this fall working through the first half of Mark's gospel. The gospel of, of Mark and the first half of his gospel really focuses on the person of Jesus, who Jesus is. Now we're moving into the second half of the gospel. After Peter's great confession, who is Jesus? You are the Christ. The second half of Mark's gospel goes on to focus more on the the purpose of Jesus, why he came. And so we're going to spend this winter working our way through the second half of the gospel, considering that question together. And our passage this morning serves as something of a transition, a transition from this focus on the person of Jesus, who he is, to this focus on the purpose of Jesus, why he came. So let's read it together. Mark chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 1 and read through to the end of verse 13. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, of the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Friends, this is the gospel of Christ. Father, when your son came to pray 
in John 17, he prayed for us. And one of the things he prayed was that we would see his glory. That we would see his glory. Father, we now pray that you would answer that prayer in our midst this morning. That the prayer of of Christ first made those years ago, no doubt made on our behalf uh, thousands of times since then, would become a reality in our midst as we come and meet with Jesus in his word. So do the work of your spirit, we pray, in the perfect and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. You remember the last time you went to the movie theater? Not the last time you watched a movie at home, but the last time you actually went to the theater. You went in and you bought your ticket and you found your seat. And then I like to recline it all the way back and then wait for the movie to to start. And before the movie starts, the previews come on. These short summaries of movies that are about to come out. They pack as much action into two minutes as possible to compel you to come back and watch the next movie. Well, this morning, friends, grab your popcorn, silence your cell phones, because we are about to see the greatest previews of all time. This passage is going to give us a preview of the glory of Jesus Christ. The context begins in verse 1, where Jesus says these um, slightly strange words to his disciples. What What do you make of these words? Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What is what does that mean? What is Jesus referring to? Well, read on. Verse 2. After six days, and this time stamp is unusual in Mark. Remember Mark's gospel, everything happens immediately. That's how he describes the succession of events. This happened, then immediately this happened, then immediately this happened. It's unusual, especially in this phase of the gospel, to get a a specific time marker. And the point is that Mark is connecting what he's saying here in verse 2 to what he just said in verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John some of those who had been standing there. And he took them up a high mountain by themselves. We're not told which mountain. Commentators suggest this is probably Mount Hermon, which was the the tallest mountain in Israel, about 9,000 feet, and close to Caesarea Philippi, where the disciples have just been in chapter 8. Wherever it is, there Jesus is going to show them what he said in verse 1. He's going to show them the kingdom of God coming in power. How is he going to do that? By showing them himself. By showing them himself. Ben Witherington, one commentator, puts it this way. The transfiguration reveals the kingdom of God by unveiling the king. We're going to see the kingdom of God coming in power as we see the king. And this passage is going to give us five previews of his glory. You tracking with me? Five previews, five glimpses of the glory of of Christ. Five um, items designed to show us just how glorious he is. You ready? Let's watch these things together. Preview number one, the first glimpse of the glory of Christ that we get in this text comes in the appearance. The appearance, namely Christ's appearance that we see 
in verse 2. Look down with me. There we read that Jesus was transfigured before them. Now, transfigured, isn't that a weird word? I can confidently say that other than reading the Bible, I have never used that word in my entire life. Maybe you use it regularly, part of your common vocabulary. As for me in my house, we never use this word. But its meaning actually isn't all that complicated. Transfigured. Trans means to change. And figure refers to form or appearance. So when it says that Jesus was transfigured, it just means that his form or his appearance changed. The way that Jesus looked changed before them. And so he had gone up this mountain looking like an ordinary first century Jewish man. But once he got there, Matthew tells us, his face began to shine like the sun. And here in Mark, we read that his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Are you, are you with me on this mountain? Are you, are, you, are, are you squinting at this scene? At Jesus unveiling his glory in the brightness that is like the, the, the sun. How we would have squinted as if your spouse turned on the light in the morning before you were ready. As if you were leaving the movie theater in the middle of the day. As if you were lying on the beach, or perhaps if you're a skier, standing on the slopes, and the sun is overpowering. Well, in the same way in this text, the glory of Jesus is overpowering. It's, over, it's overwhelming. And don't you love how it's different to what just happened with Moses? A moment ago, we read about Moses and how his face shone. Why, why, though, his face shone because he had been with God. He had been in the presence of God, and God's glory had left a mark on him. As a man who sunburns, I can well understand, right? Been with God, and God's glory had, had left this mark upon him. But Jesus doesn't reflect the glory of God. Jesus doesn't need to spend time with God in order to shine. Why? Because he is God. This isn't a reflection of the glory of God. This is the glory of God itself. Hebrews 1 verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. All the beauty of God, all the majesty of God shines in the appearance, shines in the face of Christ. Jesus is glorious. Preview number two, second glimpse of Christ's glory that we see in this text comes in the visitors. The visitors, we see them in verse four, don't we? And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking to Jesus. Isn't this a strange text? Friends, read the Bible like it's the first time you've ever read it. What is going on here? First of all, Jesus is shining like the sun, and now two dudes have appeared from heaven for a conversation to have a chat with, with Jesus. What's going on here? Why do they appear? Well, there are various theories. Both Elijah and Moses were certainly powerful figures in Israel's past. Both Elijah and Moses had had mountaintop revelations of God of, of their own. 
Perhaps Elijah and Moses are here to represent the law and the prophets. All of those things could be true. But I think the main point for us this morning, the main reason that they are here is this, that both men, Elijah and Moses, were precursors to the coming of the Messiah. I'm going to say that again, and then I'm going to ask, what on earth does that mean? Okay. Both Elijah and Moses were precursors to the coming of the Messiah. Well, what does that mean? Can we use some normal, normal English here? Well, remember with me the last time you went to see your favorite band. Remember that? And they no doubt had some opening acts who played before them. So uh, me and my son went to see Ed Sheeran and Snow Patrol opened for them. They played Chasing Cars. It was awesome. We had, we had a great time. The opening acts, it is their job to, to ready the crowd. It is their job to prepare the way for the main event. Well, that's what Elijah and Moses did for Jesus. That's what it means that they were precursors of the Messiah. They were the opening acts for the Savior who was to come. We read that this was part of Elijah's job in the book of of Malachi. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Verse 6 of chapter 4 tells us who this messenger is. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That Moses was a precursor and an opening act. We're told this in the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 18, verse 15. Moses says of himself, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then verse 18 of chapter 18, God says of Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command. And so now here we are, Elijah and Moses, the opening acts with Jesus the main event. And isn't that staggering? Like, catch the glory. I'm taken with this text this morning, people. Hang with me. Isn't it awesome that two dudes can appear from heaven and that's not the most exciting thing on the mountain? (laughs) That's not even the main event. They are just the opening act. Such is the glory of Christ. Preview number two, the visitors. Jesus is glorious. Well, preview number three, the third glimpse we get of Jesus after the appearance and after the visitors is number three, the fear, the disciples' fear. Look down with me at verse five. Here comes Peter. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. I don't know his tone of voice when he says that. I I don't know if he's like, thanking the Lord that he's here, or if it's a prideful statement, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to know. It's good that we're here. Then he continues, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, commentators, preachers, theologians have spilled an unbelievable amount of ink and put all sorts of time and energy and angst into explaining what are these tents all about? Why is Peter suggesting that they build these tents? Perhaps it has some tie-in to the Feast of Tabernacles? Uh, perhaps it's just a way to, to honor the, the three who have, have appeared. In the end, it really doesn't matter. The theologians, dare I say, are wasting their time. Why? Because the text tells us that Peter only said this because, look at verse 6, he did not know what to say. 
isn't that great? Peter, always ready and willing to dive in, even when he has no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> now, of course, we can understand the moment of confusion, all that he's seeing before, before his eyes. But then verse 6 goes on to tell us the specific reason why he did not know what to say. He did not know what to say, and they did not know what to say. The disciples did not know what to say. Why? Look at verse 6. For they were terrified. And wouldn't, wouldn't you be? When confronted with the glory of Christ, Peter, James, and John are rightly afraid. And it calls to mind that passage from Revelation 1 that we just read where we get that description of Jesus. And when John sees it, what does he do? He falls at his feet as though dead. To see Jesus is, to, to, to see him as he really is, is to see something so awesome that you will fear for your life. Rosie and I had the great privilege several years ago of going on a safari in the, the Serengeti of, of Tanzania. And as we were driving along in our little open-top uh, jeep, we came across this injured zebra, this injured zebra um, for you all. <laughs> I'll use, I'm bilingual, I'll use your language, okay? <laughs> Came across this injured, this injured zebra, and on one side of, of the zebra, a crocodile lay menacingly still. And on the other side, this lioness stalked, waiting to kill. Food is in the middle, a, a, a precious resource, and this standoff had, had emerged. And Rosie and I sat there, and we held our breath. And we felt small. And we felt awe. And we felt fear. Fear in the face of the power of nature. And so we wonder how much more fear ought we feel at the power of this super nature. <laughs> the supernatural. We test ourselves. How is it that we come uh, to consider Christ? We recognize that our culture has really sanitized Jesus. Like we've reduced him to this kind of like Scandinavian nice looking dude with blue eyes and a blonde beard who could like fit nicely on the cover of a Bee Gees album, right? <laughs> I reduced him to this kind of wet modeling figure who's just ready to hand out free hugs, but you know that's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's not the Jesus that was on the mountain and it's not the Jesus who's in heaven today. It's not the Jesus of Revelation. What do we read? He is clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. His hair is, is white like wool, like snow. His eyes are like flames of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice is like the roar of many waters. He holds the stars in his hands. His face shines like the sun when it shines in full strength. If you see Jesus as he really is, you're right to be afraid. If you see Jesus as he really is, you're right to fall at his feet as though dead because Jesus is glorious. Preview number four. Fourth glimpse of his glory that we see in this text after the appearance, the visitors, the fear is the voice. The voice of verse seven. 
We read that a cloud overshadowed them. This isn't bad weather. This isn't a normal storm. Remember how God had made his presence known to the people of the Old Testament, appearing to them in a, in a cloud. Well, so God brings his presence to the disciples once again, now in the New Testament, here in, in the same way. And now his voice comes out of the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, the voice of God. And what does God say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, those words perhaps are familiar to us as we've, we've come across words very close to that as we've worked our way through Mark's gospel. Remember back in chapter one at Jesus's baptism, God appeared and he spoke these words directly to Jesus. Remember, he said, you are my beloved son. And with you, I am well pleased. Well, now we're going to hear those words again, but you notice the variation. This time, God isn't speaking directly to Jesus. He's speaking directly to the disciples. And he says, this, this is my beloved son. God himself lifts up Jesus and, 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 and exalts him before the disciples' presence. Now listen, what do we know about God? We know that he will not share his glory with another. He will, he will not exalt or lift up another. And yet here he is lifting up, exalting, sharing glory with Jesus because Jesus is God. And then after lifting him up, after exalting him, God says to the disciples, Listen to him. He commands obedience to Jesus because Jesus is the king. He's glorious. Okay, one more. Fifth preview, fifth glimpse of Christ's glory in this text. The appearance, the visitors, the fear, the voice, and lastly, the mission. The mission. In verse 8, the cloud lifts and Elijah and Moses depart apparently as quickly as they came and the disciples stagger and they look around and then they realize that they've left been left with Jesus and that they are alone and then Jesus in the verses that follow directs their attention to two aspects of his mission first verse 12 is suffering his suffering it is written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Now again, imagine with me that this is the first time you've read this story. Maybe today this is the first time you've heard this story. And, and if it is, then, then you've got a bit of a head start. Because when you read these words, you initially realized this isn't what we expected to hear. We've been talking about one who is powerful. We'll talk about this one who is, who is glorious. And then the next thing we read is that he's, he, he's going to suffer. That's, that's not how powerful, glorious people typically behave. And yet, for the believer in Jesus Christ, does his suffering not make him more glorious? Does the fact that he would use his power and his glory to orchestrate all of human history that he might die on a cross for us. For the believer, his suffering doesn't subtract from his glory. It only adds to his glory. And after pointing them toward the suffering of his mission, he then points them toward the resurrection that he will accomplish in his mission. Verse 9 
Jesus charges the disciples not to tell anyone what they've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Remember, the disciples don't understand all of these things yet. They don't know what they're talking about. And so Jesus isn't keen for them to go running off and talking about things they don't yet understand. Also, Jesus has a timetable of his own. He has a mission. He has a plan. And he doesn't want his timetable to be hindered by the, the gossips and the rumor and all the drama that's sure to occur if, if an event as powerful as this gets out to the crowd. And so he sticks to his timetable and informs them that while it will involve suffering, back to the point, it will not end in death. He spoke to them about how he will rise from the dead, that Jesus will rise again, that that's who he is, the king who will suffer, but then rise so that we can have life. That's the glory of Jesus. Do you get it? Do you taste it? You take in with it? A glorious Christ. Well, what do we do with it? <laughs> what, what, what is the right response for us uh, to his glory this morning? All sorts of things we could say, but for today, let me give you one answer. And it's this. In response to the glory of Christ, order your life around it. Order your life around the glory of Christ. Don't do anything until you've looked at Christ's glory first. Don't do anything until you've looked at life's Christ's glory first, because living in the presence of this Jesus, the transfigured Revelation 1 Jesus, changes everything. Let me give you some examples. Um, maybe you came to church this morning, and if you're being honest, you came a little bored. You came a little bored. You came a little spiritually flat. You came without a lot of excitement about your faith. Personally, I've been in a bit of a funk recently. Not any dramatic crisis of faith where I'm doubting all these things and whether or not they're true, but just the kind of flatness, not being as energized or as compelled by, by our faith and my day-to-day -day routine. And don't we, we all have seasons like that where we feel spiritually flat, not having a great crisis, just not that excited about it. And maybe, maybe that's how you came to church this morning. Maybe that's where you find yourself today. The Christian life makes you say, Phew. and it kind of feels like a long list of rules. And honestly, there's things you'd rather do with your time. There's things you'd rather do with your money. There's things you'd rather do with your body than come to Christ and, and follow him, friends, when we're like this, when I'm like this, you understand we have a glory problem? That the solution isn't to double down on what we were thought, thought we were meant to do and start to try and follow all, all the rules. The solution is to see the glory of Christ, to remember who he is, to put yourself on that mountain on that day, the appearance, the visitors, the fear, the voice, the mission, to remember, friends, if Jesus came to church right now, you would not be bored. You, there's all sorts of things you might be, bored is not one of them. You would fall down on your face as though dead. And then, don't you love it? Don't you love that you would, feel more alive than you've ever felt. 
Isn't that a funny thing? Nothing makes you feel more alive than something that makes you want to fall down dead. Right? Go ride a roller coaster. Whoop and spin and whirl and dive. Get off feeling dizzy, but very much alive. When else do you say, oh, I can feel my toes, right? The, these experiences of, of awe bring us back to life. And so if you're feeling bored, if you're feeling spiritually flat, behold the glory of Jesus. Another example, um, maybe you didn't come to church this morning feeling bored, but maybe you did come struggling. Maybe you came to church this morning and you're, you're hurting. You too need to order your life around the glory of Christ. You need to not look at your struggles till you've looked at Christ first. Why? Because our struggles look very different in the presence of this Jesus. Loneliness feels different when the glorious Christ calls you his friend. And fear feels different when the glorious Christ holds your future in his hands. And cancer feels different when the glorious Christ has conquered death. The Bringing our struggles into the presence of Christ. His transfigured revelation one. White robed sash wearing eyes flaming voice roaring star holding face shining presence. Bringing our struggles into the presence of that Jesus doesn't magically erase all our struggles. But it does make us carry them differently. If you're struggling this morning, behold the glory of Jesus. Okay, one more. And we're done. Maybe you didn't come to church bored. Maybe you didn't come to church struggling. Maybe this morning you came to church happy. Praise the Lord for that. This is a hospital always for, for, for the hurting and, and the suffering. But you don't have to hurt and suffer all your life. Right? It's okay to come in and, and be in a, in a good place. And we say, great, order that around the glory of Christ. Don't look at your joy. Don't look at your celebration without looking at Christ first. Why? Because they also look different in the presence of this Jesus. You get up and you eat breakfast and you don't just mindlessly eat breakfast. You eat it and say, ah, this is a gift from his hand. And then you go to the job that you enjoy and you don't just go and enjoy it. You say, this is Christ's provision for my life. And you see your friends or your family who, who mean so much to you. And you don't just enjoy them. You, you recognize that they are a gift of, of health from, from the glorious Christ. And so as you start to connect the dots from your joys to his hand, you start to eat, drink, or whatever you do to the glory of God. Because you're not just having breakfast and enjoying work and, you know, seeing your friends and family. You are doing those things in joyful response to the glory of Christ. You see how that's different? And you see how the joy of those things is, is in fact deepened? <laughs> These things become better when you view them in the light of Christ's glory. If you're happy, behold the glory of Jesus. Okay, bored, struggling, happy, all of the above, somewhere in between. Order your life around the glory of Christ. Don't look at anything until you've looked at Jesus first. Living in the presence of this, Jesus changes everything. One of the quick ways I try and do that is whenever I'm, I'm faced with a decision, I have a, 
having an, an imaginary boardroom in my mind. And sitting around the table are different people who've been really important to me in my life. So kind of my main spiritual mentor has a seat, and I bring this decision to him, and I imagine what he would say in response to it. My grandfather, who has now died, but probably shaped me as much as, as any man, he has a seat at this table, and I, I bring my decision to him, and I wonder, ooh, what, what, what would he have to say about, about this? Uh, a close friend, I'll do the same. With some fear and trepidation, I imagine what my mother would say, right? <laughs> then I turn to the chairman of the board. I turn to Jesus and think, in light of who you actually are, what decision should I make? I want to order my life around your glory. I want to not do anything until I've looked at you first, because living in your presence changes everything. Friends, let's do this. And certainly the next time you go to the movies, remember these previews. We have a glorious Savior, and he loves us today just as we are. Amen. Jesus, you prayed that we would see your glory. And you've given us your word that that we might behold you there. And so we come. We come asking that you would help us to see you as you really are. And that you would then help us to order our lives around that great and beautiful reality. It is... In your glorious name that we pray. Amen.